Good morning, everybody. If uh, they, you have any kids and you'd like them to go to Gospel Project up through fifth grade, now's the time uh, to lead them that direction. Everybody else, as Todd said, will be um, in the Word again this morning. We'll be in Galatians chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, turn with me there, please. And if you don't, underneath the seat in front of you, there should be a, a blue one, blue Bible that looks like this. And on page 566, you'll find the section of the Scriptures we'll be in this morning. If you're new to the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. We'll be in chapter 4. Smaller numbers are the verse numbers. We'll be starting in verse 8 in just a couple of minutes. One of the more common objections to Christianity is that it is just a list of do's and don'ts. Have you heard that? Under that perspective, being a Christian is primarily about not doing a certain set of things while being sure to do another. Frankly, I think it's easy to understand why Christianity would appear to be a straitjacket if that's what you think Christianity is. Now, while certain, certainly Christians hold that some actions and attitudes are honoring to God and others are not, while we certainly believe that some things must be done and other things must not, to define that as the essence of Christianity is a grave mistake. It's not actually what we believe. You see, the root of biblical faith is not at all about what we do for God. It's about what God has done for us. The the root is God's gracious plan to save His people through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because God's always been committed to having a people for Himself. The fruit is that saved people are, in fact, learning to obey God in all things. All the do's and don'ts of the Bible flow out of what we might call the already done. What Jesus did for us so overwhelms us that it transforms us out of lovers of self into lovers of God, into people who are, in fact, willing to do whatever God commands. Obedience, though, must be seen as the fruit of or the result of salvation, not the cause of it. To get those things out of order is to completely misunderstand what the Christian faith is. If you get them out of order, you no longer have Christianity. You have something that in some way might sound similar. But make no mistake, it is an imposter. The Galatian churches that we've been studying together about this fall, these churches that Paul originally wrote to, were in the process of falling prey to spiritual imposters who were teaching them the opposite of what Paul had taught them. And so, together we've heard passage after passage encourage us to see the grace we've received by faith remains the only way for sinners to be made right with God. And the book has been telling us that 
over and over and over again through all kinds of different angles. Today, we'll encounter this message yet again. But this time, it comes through a plea that's not so much a complex theological argument in which one issue's laid on top of another, on top of another, on top of another, and your head is just swimming in detail. This morning, we don't so much have that as we have a rather straightforward, emotional, personal, even intimate appeal. In one sense, I think this morning we could take off our thinking caps and grab the tissues because this is not so much a head-scratcher as it is a tear-jerker. May God give us an experience this morning that is similar to what the Galatians would have had when they first heard this read to them. That's what God would want for us as we consider our text this morning. Our verses will break down easily into two parts. You'll see an assertion in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 to 11, and then an appeal in Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 to 20. Let's take them in that order. First, the uh, assertion in verses 8 to 11. Micah is going to come read for us. Come on up, young man. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Thank you, buddy. I love you. Look with me at the beauty of the gospel. That's bound up in the contrast between verses 8 and 9. It's so clear. Verse 8, the word formally, and verse 9, the word now. Brothers and sisters, those of you who are in Christ, remember what was true about you formally, before God saved you. You didn't know God. Do you ever remember being lost as a kid? Not spiritually, I mean physically. You ever remember getting separated from, uh, from your parents or whoever it was that raised you? I mean, really, really lost. That is a horrifying feeling. There may be people all around, yet all of them feel like danger. That's what it was like before God rescued us. We were all alone. The one for whom we were created was a stranger to us. And as far as we understood it, he didn't know us and we didn't know him. That's who we were formally. We were lost and we were enslaved. But now, as verse 9 says, now, I love that word, not later. Not when you know more of the Bible, 
Not when you really, finally, fully, completely stop that habit you wish you had never picked up. Not when you get married, not when you're older, not when you're done with school, not when you get out of debt. Now. Now the opposite is true. Christian, you know God. That's what verse 9 says. You've had a saving encounter with the God of the universe. You know him. And even more important than that, he knows you. God has set his saving, loving, covenant-keeping, eternal affection on you. He will hold you fast. He knows you. And you're free, verse 9 says. No longer are you enslaved to the things and people and actions that only led you deeper and deeper into despair and damnation. But now, now, right now, you are free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now in this passage, I've been emphasizing the positive of all that. But really in this text, it's more the negative that's emphasized. Because Paul says, how can you turn back again? Church, the the Christian life started by faith in Christ alone. To start the Christian life by that faith, only to come to believe it's not by faith alone, but it's by faith plus works. That is spiritual stupidity. Because... It is to return to the formerly. In the historical situation of the Galatian churches, these Christians were turning from grace back to the commands of the Old Testament Jewish law. For us, we're probably not tempted to pick up the laws I read last week. Remember that long list we started with? You're probably in the last seven days since we've been here together. You've probably not been tempted to pick up flour or rams or tithes as what would make you right with God. But are you tempted to take the commands of the New Testament and turn them into a new law by which you merit something from God? It might not be flour or rams, but what has it been this week? The impulse to relate to God for his acceptance on the basis of actions instead of on the basis of grace, that remains a present struggle for many of us, does it not? So risky is that way of thinking that If you choose that course and you stay on it, then your anti-gospel, pro-works attitudes and actions may end up conveying in the end that you never knew God in the first place. That's what Paul means when he says, maybe I've labored over you in vain. Christian, be warned. Actions cannot earn 
God's saving acceptance. Now, we'll hit this only briefly, but those are some of the details in the passage. But if you look and zoom out to the 30,000-foot view and consider verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, and what it's asserting when when we put the pieces together, Here's what he's saying. He's saying, before the Galatians heard the gospel, they were enslaved. They had desires that dominated them, and those desires led to the worship of idols. Idols that captured them under demonic power. They were enslaved to worshiping gods that aren't gods at all. In fact, these so-called gods were nothing more than a figment of their imagination. There are no gods but gods. Now, if you've been around Christianity a while, all of that will sound very familiar. Passage after passage after passage, in book after book after book, we learn that. But there is something here that's rather striking, that is unusual. Here's what it is. He says, to turn from knowing God by faith, to trying to obey laws to merit salvation. That shift is to return to the idolatry we were already rescued out of. To be attempting to be made right with God by works is to be enslaved to the worship of gods who don't exist. Imagine having been a Galatian, one who worshipped Greek gods, many of them, and to see all of life as trying to appease those gods, and then to hear of the biblical God who rescues you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and having been delivered out of that demonic worship into the worship of the one true God. And then to be taught, no, it's not only faith and grace. You also got to obey. Then you'll be really saved. And to start believing that, to head that direction. And then to be told, if you pick up the, the laws of the Old Testament and believe by obeying them, that's what makes you right with God. These would have been incredibly jarring words. Paul's saying you've entered back into your pagan idolatry. That's amazing. (laughs) Those of you who are bent toward rule keeping, you ought to consider how serious that warning is. You cannot relate to God on the basis of law. Because that God doesn't exist. To turn from faith to law is to return to idolatry. Now, for time's sake, we need to go on. But I want to encourage you to write that idea down and circle those verses. And get together with other Christians in your gospel community or with a mentor or somebody you'd like to get to know, 
sit down with a cup of coffee and just talk about that idea and how it relates to how you relate to God. There are hours of conversations to be had there. But let's go on this morning to the, the appeal in verses 12 to 20. And this next paragraph is far more striking than the last. It says in verse 12, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also became as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn me or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. That took a dark turn. How have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, but not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. The appeal here is in verse 12. It's become as I am, for I became as you are. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, it's, it's rather brilliant. Paul, being ethnically Jewish, had become a Christian, and now he was free from the law. God saved him on the basis of grace, not law. And in that sense, Paul, the Jew, had become like the Gentiles, people free from the law. So he's saying, I'm, I'm free. Live like me. Now, don't miss the irony. The, the Jew here is telling the Gentiles to live like Gentiles because that's how he was living as a Jew. Live free from the law as a way of earning, getting right with God. Jesus took care of that. Become like me because I've become like you. That's what that means. Now, to put that in our language, uh, church, look for godly people to follow as they follow Christ. That is the, the closest way to express that today. And the closest application for us is to be under the teaching of pastors who are godly examples of genuine Christian faith. Men who believe and trust Jesus and aim to live their lives under His good rule. I hope we, the elders of Churchill Mill, are ever growing into that and those kinds of pastors for you. That is our sincere desire. Paul's appeal, become as I am, is though not 
merely an appeal. It's a command. And it's the only command in this entire section of everything we read this morning, all those verses. There's only one thing being commanded, and it's become as I am. Church, we are to live free from rules as the saving acceptance before God. We're to trust ourselves into the loving care of God on the basis of grace. We're to depend on Him and Him alone as the one who can make us right with Him. Now, the rest of this paragraph tremendously ratchets up that appeal. It gets more and more and more emotional and intense It's an incredibly personal appeal. Apparently, if we try to put the pieces together, it seems that in the first century, Paul had first come to Galatia, not in order to stay there long, but to just pass through. But providentially, he came down with some kind of serious physical problem. That's what verse 13 says indicates. Now, everybody wants to talk about, well, what was the problem? And literally, books are written on that. Some interpreters speculate that he had malaria. Others say he had something wrong with his eyes. Still others think Paul was deformed because of how many times he'd been beaten to the edge of death. Any of those are possibilities. Maybe it was all of them. The truth is, we don't know. It doesn't matter. They knew. Verse 13 explicitly says that. The people hearing this letter read to them, they knew, and that's what mattered. There was no question in their minds. Paul was messed up. And whatever his illness was, It was visible. There was no hiding it. He couldn't pretend he was healthy. Now, why this talk about Paul's health? Well, friends, it's because Paul preached a gospel of supernatural power. But his body was a display of human frailty. So he... He spoke of a God who is able to do anything, everything. And yet he himself couldn't do anything. That's the contrast being drawn. That's typical of God, isn't it? This is, in fact, his M.O., God specializes in using the submitted weaknesses of his followers to highlight the power of his gospel. We sometimes think today that God works in spite of our weaknesses, but that's not right. God doesn't work in spite of your weaknesses. He works precisely through them. The way in which, Christian, you will show God the clearest is not on your best days. It's on the days that you're the weakest, the frailest, the most pathetic. 
Because those are the days in which you don't lean on your own strength, but on His. And that's what people need to see. In the first century, it was often thought that a physical problem was evidence of the displeasure of the gods. So if you put that understanding on this text, then it becomes all the more clear. The sick were commonly thought of as being under divine judgment. And yet so clearly and mightily, Paul's gospel was being heard and received, and the Christians in Galatia were happy. That's what the word blessedness means. They were happy as they listened to this weak, sick man tell them of a God who will heal all things. Paul's physical ailments in no way prevented their reception of the gospel or him as their gospel messenger. It's like the false teachers were telling the church after Paul left. See, you can't trust him. Remember how he looks? Remember how sick he is? God's judging him. If Paul had got the gospel right, he'd be healthy. He'd be strong like us. Follow us and you too will be healthy and strong. But as false teachers always are, they were driven by self-promotion, self-aggrandizement. Not only was their doctrine bad, they were preaching for the praise of people. All of this builds uh, climactically to verse 19. It's worth reading again. My little children, for whom I am in anguish, again, in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, ladies, I feel like I'm venturing a bit into risky waters here. But notice that Paul, a guy, here describes himself as one overcome. By labor pains. We all know that if men were the ones to give birth, humanity would not survive. Uh, Having been in the room when uh, my bride gave birth to our firstborn, a process that lasted 24 hours, and Then she later was willing to do it again (laughs) with another child. I can say that the word anguish is the appropriate word. And with all of that in mind, consider what Paul's doing when he uses the word again. He's saying, Church, I already had you. I already went through labor. The first time I came to Galatia, I was so ill, and yet I preached and taught and labored with you to give 
birth to new spiritual life. And God gave it. But now I'm having to labor for you all over again. This time, the agony Paul felt was the agony of hearing that they may be defecting from Christ. And so he was having to preach the gospel all over to them afresh and anew. He wept for them. He cried for them as he was overwhelmed physically, emotionally, spiritually. As he wondered, would they turn all the way to a false gospel? If so, then we carry the the analogy of the labor forward. What he's saying is, I am in agony, the agony of childbirth again. And I'm wondering if what I will have is a stillborn child, one who is dead. But Paul was committed to laboring over them until Christ was fully formed in them. As we learned in chapter 2, the the truth of the Christian life is what we might call the cruciformed life, the life in which we die and Christ comes to live in us. This won't be on the screens, I've just thought of it, but turn back to chapter 2, verse 20. Perhaps nowhere is this idea more clear in the book of Galatians than here. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a definition of Christianity. Brothers and sisters, you have been crucified with Christ. Your old life, formerly, is gone. Now, new life. That's Christ in you. And Christ is to be formed in you. He is to transform how you live every moment of every day. In which what people see when they look at you is they see Christ being formed in you. If Jesus were walking in your shoes, living your life this coming week, where would he go? What would he say? How would he react? How would he drive? How would he labor with the coworker who's not easy to work with? What would he say to the teacher, to the person at the gym, to your boss, to your friend? to your enemies. Friends, that's, that, those aren't ifs and woulds. That's actually what is to be happening because Christ is being formed in you. Church, the kinds of preaching and preachers we all need to call us to that are not the ones who appear to be without limitations or weaknesses. They're not the ones who must have PhDs and pristine resumes. 
the ones whose rhetoric must be eloquent and their bodies healthy. They're simply the ones who need to say, become as I am, and who must be committed to laboring, even in anguish, until Christ is formed in you. The imitation of Christ in a humble, compelling, truth-telling, cruciform, weakness yet displaying God's strength kind of way. That's the kind of preaching and preachers you need. We need. And the relationships forged as preachers preaching through God's Word meet with the people of God people who were enslaved and who no longer are. That's what the church is supposed to be like. The church accepting the power of the gospel through the weak ones who preach it bonds the people together like nothing else. Obviously, there's personal application for us. My boot is not just a prop. <laughs> In some ways, our experience these last years is sure in a distant, but um, very much yet an analogous way. As I've worked on this passage this week, I couldn't help but think of how years ago, as I got sicker and sicker and weaker and weaker, and no one had yet figured out what was wrong, you uh, endured. There was no hiding it. I love you too. Uh, even as God called me to be one of your pastors leading you, I've had days where I was barely living, but you didn't scorn me or the gospel. I pray that my weaknesses and frailty would never be a stumbling block, that they would never confuse or discourage you from trusting God's goodness. And no matter what sicknesses or sufferings may come, what body part gets broken next? I sincerely pray that God's power would be perfected in my weaknesses so that His power for you in yours would be ever clearer. Church, to turn from faith to law is to return to idolatry. Therefore, may you become free from the law, like this one, who in all the frailty and brokenness is experiencing the power of God. The summer I was diagnosed with lupus, the passage God used to get me through is the one I'd like to end this morning by reading. 
we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is producing for us or preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. For the things that are unseen are eternal. Church weaknesses are always welcome because it is in those weaknesses. God's power will be seen clearly. Let's pray. Before I close us, I encourage you to go to the Lord in prayer yourself. Father, in many ways, this Christian life we live is full of paradoxes. We believe in a God of all power who created all things simply by speaking, who upholds all things, who sustains all things, who rules over all who has no beginning and no end, who knows all and yet who displays himself most clearly in this age through the frailty and weaknesses of his followers. That ought not be surprising to us as we consider our Savior Himself. Father, we pray through the hearing of Your Word today that Your followers would be strengthened. That those of us who tend to want to relate to You for acceptance based on law and rules and works that we would deeply, deeply appreciate today the gravity of grace. And Father, we ask that you would bring more and more people here who you'd be rescuing out of who they formerly are into who they now are. And that, God, you would protect and sustain us all as Christ is being formed in us. In Jesus' name.